0: When it comes to the moral cancer of sin that will be terminal forever in our lives, many choose to ignore the cure offered by the great physician. In Romans, the Apostle Paul brings his accusation that all of us are guilty before God and facing his just condemnation. If we are all terminally ill spiritually, and religious moral principles and practices can't cure us. What can? Dave Wurtzen continues our study in Romans 3 with Paul's answer to this question.
1: want to begin this morning. I want you to imagine yourself that you start feeling a little bit sick. You're not just quite with it. You feel weak. You feel sluggish. You know, maybe your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife says to you, hey, you know, you don't really look so good. Anybody ever had somebody look at you and say, hey, you know, you don't really look so good. And they're not talking about just your appearance. Uh, They're talking about physically there's just something not right. So you, how many of you love going to the doctor? If you're like me, do everything you can and you try to keep from going to the doctor, but you find out you got to go to the doctor and when you go in, you know, the doctor takes his stethoscope out and has all that stuff on you. takes your blood pressure. And he says, hey, we need to run some tests. And he puts you in that great big MRI machine a couple days later. And how, what do you feel like while you're waiting for, for the results of the MRI? You know, anybody ever gone through that experience? How many of you have ever waited on the results of a test? I mean, you're just on pins and needles. And it, and it seems to me, I think the doctors have a, have a thing for us. They make us just, just sweat, great fear drops. And they, make you, they don't just usually do it the next day. They usually make you wait about three or four days so you arrive at their office. You go in, and you know instead of the nice examining, examining room with the stainless steel things, in the examining room in the, in the office of the physician, it looks more like a study. And you settle down in that big, lush leather chair, and they're holding their authority position across the desk. And there's that Manila, manila envelope that you know has the results of your MRI. And their daughter says, well, it's good to see you this afternoon, and, you, and you're setting in your heart, man, get with it, get with it, get with it. Tell me what's going on. And they open up that envelope, and they say, I've got some really bad news for you. Ugh. How many of you have ever had that kind of news? In fact, you have really a bad malignancy. I mean, it's a terminal malignancy, and it's a very fast-growing malignancy, and it's going to take you out. Those are some of the heaviest words. Some of you, I've never received those kind of words about malignancy, but as I look around this room, many of you have received that kind of report, and that's scary. But let's suppose after giving you that sledgehammer blow, they say, well, i got some good news for you. Over at Johns Hopkins, they've just done some very advanced genetic research, and in your particular kind of cancer that's been deadly and terminal, That they've developed a cure right down on the the genetic level, right down inside your genes. And we're going to be able to really work on this. And the good news is, I've got a cure for you. Now, what are you going to do at that moment? You just received a really bad diagnosis from a really strong physician. And they're offering you a cure. And that's what the Apostle Paul spiritually has been doing. The Apostle Paul, as you open your Bibles today to to Romans chapter 3, we're at the conclusion of what he started in chapter 1, verse 18. And I want you to picture him being like a great physician. And what he's done is he's done an MRI on our soul. And he's exposed what's really going on. And for the last several weeks, I've been trying to get across to you what what Paul says about your human condition. And I'm trying to teach you that you can believe what you want to about your internal spiritual moral condition. You can believe, you know, what B.B. King says, that we're all just basically good, and I can't figure out why such good people do bad things. You can believe what you're taught in a psych class, that that it's you know, that it's basically just learning behavior patterns. You can learn what a, what scientism would teach you, not science, but scientism, which is making science your God, that you're just a bag of chemicals. You can go to the Von Hagen exhibit like Mary and I did, and and you can just say, well, hey, man, we're just a bunch of muscles and nervous tissue, and and that's all there is. And Even head up in this up in this Epicurus, you know, some of the Greek philosophers saying when you die, you just die. That's it. And you can read all that. This, this stuff is all around us. Praise the Lord. They also had some stuff from Augustine about the fact that you might be a little bit more than just a bag of leather-like stuff like muscles and electrical wiring and all that kind of a thing, that you might be something more than that. everyone that you meet has beliefs about who you are and what condition you're in. The Apostle Paul is the person that I've chosen to base my eternity on his word as he points me to Jesus. And when we get to Romans chapter 3, turn there to verse 9, he says, what shall we conclude then? Now when a teacher says, now what should we conclude? I was raised going to meetings all the time. That was my sign that my dad was almost finished. Not quite, but almost. In fact, my dad was just beginning to get finished when he said, Now, I want to tell you something in conclusion. And you notice it, like, like father, like son. Okay? But a preacher says, Now, I want to tell you something in conclusion. And even when you're reading a book or when you're hearing somebody talk to you, that's a big signal. I need to listen real carefully. And what he does in the next few verses is he builds a case from the Old Testament. A lot of you haven't been into the Old Testament that much, and this is a great place to start to get into it. The Apostle Paul's audience that he was speaking to in the city of Rome, the Jewish part of that audience really understood these references. So he doesn't even have to explain them. He's speaking to an audience that that really knows this material. A lot of us don't know the material as well. And I'll just try to give you an insight into what he's doing. Remember, he's not just speaking to all people at this time, although he's going to begin to open up the circle and not just be speaking to religious Jewish people that are trusting in their Jewishness in order to get right with God. He's concluding that argument, and that's why he's going to use some strong Jewish scriptures because that would have carried on a strong way with them. I also want you to know that in the Old Testament, there's like a righteous, God-fearing, Yahweh-worshipping person. Someone that, like Abraham, has trusted in Yahweh. And now God has given the tabernacle and the temple worship. And they're going to offer the sacrifices. And there are those that view themselves as part of this covenant community. They also had a category called the wicked. And the wicked were those that didn't follow Yahweh. They could be a Jewish person, for example, that instead of worshiping the God of Israel, they start worshiping the gods of Babylon. For example, what generated the captivity and the movement towards Babylon... ...is most of Israel turned away from the true God... ...and the category in the Old Testament for that kind of a person was the wicked. Or the non-righteous person, the person that chose... ...and also the word foolish, a fool, like in Proverbs. It talks about this person that turns away from the skillful advice... ...and they start following false gods. Now, in the first century... The Jewish person, like the Apostle Paul, would illustrate this before he came to know Jesus. The Jewish person would think of themselves as being the righteous, not the wicked. Because they had come back from the Babylonian captivity. They had established themselves in the land. They are worshiping in the temple. They don't have little Canaanite idols anymore. They've been set free from that. But the incredible, insightful diagnosis that the Apostle Paul is making is that they have externalized all that. And they've started making the law the cure for their internal heart condition instead of following their father Abraham, who had a relationship with God based upon his trust in God's promises. We're going to come to that in Romans 4. But I want you to be thinking of that because Paul's laying a groundwork. You say, where am I in this? Have you been willing to let God's MRI really look at your soul? In working with people down through the years, the biggest issue among people is that we con ourselves. We arrogantly think we're better than we are. We compare ourselves with one another. One of the hardest things to do is to look honestly at what's really happening. In a small way, for example, that those of us that, that, that need to lose about 20 pounds, We look at ourselves, and and we look at ourselves the way that we looked when we were 18. There's in my mind an image of what I looked like when I first started courting Mary, when I played quarterback for a couple years in college, and I had lifted weights, and I was running every day. That image is still in my mind. I got news for you. I don't look like that anymore. It's a false idea. In fact, if you really want to lose weight, one of the most important things to do is look in the mirror. In fact, even worse, get Tim to run a videotape. A whole 40 minutes of you. And when he makes a statement, in jest, but it's true. It's just a bunch of old, fat, middle-aged men. You're faced with the truth. We all laugh about that, but it's hard for us to really look at ourselves and really see what's going on. Now, for the next few minutes, the Apostle Paul is going to show us what I'm really like and what you're really like without Jesus working in our life. And he starts out... With our heart. He's like a good physician. He starts out with the core of our personality. And he also starts out with our head, where, the way we think. Not just using a brain, but using our personality, the core of our personality. Look what he says about it. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Are Jewish people any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that both Jews and Gentiles are alike or under sin as it is written. Now he starts out with his quote, ...from the Old Testament. It starts out with Psalm 14, 1 through 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no and I could paraphrase this, there is no one who can stand before God and be right. There is no one who can be right before God based upon their own human effort. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. There is no one who is right with God... Based upon their own merit, not even one person. There is no one who understands. In other words, in your own strength today, if you say, I'm going to figure this out by myself, you're not going to do it. You see, it's like something that you just don't have the receptor for. This is really... Tough on us, because we all think, like as a scientist, I'm taught, man, when I was in college, I was taught I can get back away from things, I can think it through, and man, everything will be fine, I'll be able to figure it out, and I need to be detached, and then I can look and I can figure out what's happening. Scientists today, that's still going on, we can look at the world the way it is, we can look at what's happening in the Grand Canyon, we can look at what happened in the sky, now they're telling, the Chinese, I even heard this week, the Chinese are going to control the weather during the Olympics, they're going to make sure that it rains before the Olympics and not during the Olympics. And they're going to make the rain rain so that it, it comes down at the right time before the Olympics so the air is clear. That is as arrogant as you can possibly be. So here's some of the most brilliant people in all the world. Scientists. Now there's many scientists. I want you to understand I'm not speaking against science, but I'm speaking against an arrogance that holds we can figure it out by ourselves. Galileo was a committed believer. He prayed about his telescope. He rejoiced in the glory of God. He didn't arrogantly say, God's not involved in anything. In fact, he felt humbled. He said, God, my Father in heaven, has revealed salvation in His Son, Jesus. And what a humbling thing it is for me to be able to trace a little bit of the movement of the planets and the movement of the stars. Very humble man. And how I rejoice with people that have that humility, I don't understand. In fact, one of the very first principles that you need to learn as a student, if you want to learn anything, is you need to start out saying, I don't understand. Because if you think you already know how to do it, then the person that actually does know how to do it won't teach you. It's just the way it is. In other words, if you think you already know how to do it, in fact, how many of you have ever had that experience? You know, somebody comes up to you and you know they're really messing up really badly. You know, they're they're gonna met, they might even you know really wipe themselves out, and you try to teach them. And they say, oh, "I already know. I know everything." Nothing's smarter than an eleven-year-old. <laughs> and that the apostle Paul is not just speaking generally. He's talking about when it comes to spiritual things. There's no one who understands. Like as I talk to you today. There's a part of you that doesn't want to listen at all. Like, how many of you got up today and said, no, I don't really feel like going to church? And as you're listening to God's word, they say, oh, I don't want to get into that. Anybody have that part of you? I do. There's no one who understands. And then he goes, he says, there's no one who seeks God. There's no one who seeks God. What the Apostle Paul is saying, left to yourself in your own strength, there's not anybody on planet Earth that finds God by themselves. We go just the opposite. And so when you're working with your kids and you're working with other people, you need to understand one of the basic things you need to nail down is that the normal human condition is that they run away from God, they don't seek God. And all of us arrogantly think, oh, yeah, we seek God. We really want God. And, man, I can't figure out why I can't find him. We seek our own gods. We seek gods that we want to find. And they usually end up being ourselves. I've read thousands of pages of books where people are talking about the great supreme one and and this person that's going to, you know, whatever the great force might be. And when I get all done, it's just a picture of the author. It's exactly what the author wanted. There's a big quest for the historical Jesus in theology, where theologians worked and worked and worked. They cut away, they cut away, they cut away what the Bible said about Jesus. They were saying, we're going to find the real historical Jesus. And Dr. Albert Schweitzer, Dr. Schweitzer, one of the most powerful books he ever wrote, is he exposed how more than 100 years of German scholarship seeking Jesus... Seeking to have a true picture of Jesus, Schweitzer showed that all they had done is look into a great big well and saw a mirror image of a German professor, and that's how he destroyed the argument. He said, "How could Jesus be just like a German professor teaching at uh, teaching like at Munich University? How could that possibly ever happen? It was a joke." In other words, what the German mind did was they weren't seeking God. They eliminated all the revelation of God. And they ended up just taking a picture of themselves. And that's what all of us do. We end up worshiping ourselves. And that's a bad condition. There's really a God that's there. And all we do is look in a mirror and we look at ourselves and then we bow down and worship it. Which is what the world is doing. We, we not only worship ourselves, but we worship God's creation, we worship power, we worship animals. In the ancient world, they worship animals, and a lot of those things are just recycling. There's none of us to see God in ourselves. We've all turned away. Instead of turning towards God, we turn away from God. You grow up in a Bible church like ours, you hear the truth all the time. You go away to university, and you turn away from God. When the very first thing you do is, and you're out on your own, you turn away from God. Why do we do that? Parents, you need to really think hard about that. Kids, think about it. It's because left to ourselves, if we do our own thing, which everyone's telling us to do, we don't seek God. We turn away from Him, and we start walking into destruction. The Apostle Paul goes further. He says, there's no one who does good, not even one. So he talks about our head and our heart. It's not seeking God. Does that contradict what some of you feel intuitively? How many of you have, you know, as you talk to people, you think, well, they're really seeking God. It, how many of you get discouraged? It's, I mean, I can't believe nobody, you know, I had a young person tell me that no one, it really discourages them, even right here in the Bible church. He said it's really hard to find someone who really wants to talk about God. He's really discouraged about it. He finds it even with believers that he wants to talk to them about God and they tend to want to talk about something else. We'll say that for Sunday morning. Do you have that? And what I want you to share is that's not a reason to leave a church. It's a reason to pray for a church. It's a reason to pray for your kids. It's a reason to pray for yourself. Because it's just a diagnosis without Jesus working in our life, without the Holy Spirit operating in our life, we turn away. What do we do with our tongue? That's the next thing it says. Their throats are an open grave. It's talking about like your larynx is right here in your throat. And what he's saying is that what comes from our larynx, the words that we put together, is like a stinking grave. It says our tongues lie. Anybody heard any lies this week? Anybody ever told any lies this week? Where would that come from? The poison of vipers in the, is in their, their lips. I had someone, a young friend of mine would tell me about his family relationships and one of his siblings he said, like, when this sibling comes into the room and starts talking, it says, I'm just waiting. It's like watching a cobra coiled for a strike. Anybody have some friends like that? In other words, rather than using words that pump vitality and strengthen you, man, the person just pumps poison into your veins. And the whole atmosphere. How many of you have ever been in a family gathering? supposed to be a big celebration, and somebody strikes with a venomous assault. And the whole thing caves in. What happened? Like we're trying to get small groups It works right here in the Loathing Bible Church. We try to get small groups going in our church. So groups of families start getting together, marriages that are struggling get together, and suddenly we start striking each other with our tongues. And over the years in ministry, I've had leaders say, "Man, I can't believe it. Our whole small group fell apart. Everybody got angry." they all end up leaving. Boy, that's a great church. Why did that happen? What I love about God's word is it tells the truth. You all have, and I have it, we have serpent tongues. And we lie and we strike with a deadly poison. And if you're really God's child, you open yourself up to that diagnosis. Because you realize, unless the Lord works on your heart, that you're going to cover all that up. Like I know some people that have been in church their whole life and they do Bible studies. They head up major ministries in the church. But they use their tongue like a viper. And they destroy their family of origin. They destroy their relationships. For example, they don't let their kids grow up and get out on their own. They keep controlling everything. And their tongue keeps everyone under their domination. That's wrong. And I would have left it left you know being involved in the Lord's work a long time ago, if I was looking at, man, this is such a great group of people, and as I am in other church families, everyone is so great. The truth of the matter is that there's a side of believers that's outside of Christ that has not been justified, that old nature that was all we were before we came into Christ. And as you're working with unbelievers, you need to get it through your noggin that they're going to use their tongue like a viper. If you're at work living with a bunch of unbelievers, don't quit on your job. Don't say you're going to leave because someone strikes you. You need to be there because they need Jesus. He's the only hope they have. And you should go to work realizing unbelieving people aren't going to seek Jesus, aren't going to seek God, aren't going to understand things, and they're going to use their tongue to wipe me out. And if you get that through your noggin, if they say something nice because of God's common grace... You'll be able to fit it into your life. The next thing he says, it says their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Something goes wrong, we curse God. It's all God's fault. And then we become bitter. It's one of the big temptations in our life. And then we, we studied last week about where does murder come from. And here from the Old Testament, their feet are swift to shed blood. And we talked about the relationship between anger and murder that, we, that, we're, that we're very swift. When we get angry and then we lash out. It says, ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. How many times have you heard this week? Why can't people just get along? I heard a trooper get him back, you know, from Iraq. He said, I just can't believe it. Why can't we just get along? And he's wrestling with, why in the world do we do such heinous things to one another? Well, what I want you to know is when you look at the city of Baghdad, those people aren't weird. It's not just because they speak a different language than you do. It's just what the human race does, only in very powerful extremes. Does that make sense? Like, don't say, they're so different than you. A pious American, we would never do that. Study our history. Study what we've done to one another. That's really important to understand that. Because we always think, oh, I'm not as bad as you are. And what's real important this morning, and one of the things you want to try to help your friends that don't know the Jesus to do, you want to try to get them to face what's really going on. And Paul is building this case. The diagnosis, this is his spiritual MRI saying, there is no hope. There's no reverence of God, no fear of God before their eyes. And what he's saying, he's concluding his argument, there is no one that's going to get to heaven by obeying God's law. It says this in verse, in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now, so he built his case. There is none righteous, none at one. How many of you agree with that? How many of you think that man is basically good? How many believe that? You're going to get an F if you believe that. How many of you agree with the Apostle Paul that without the work of God's seeking, God moving, God reaching out, that humans left to themselves will turn away from God and and will destroy themselves and be destroyed? How many of you believe that? Okay, so you agree with the Apostle Paul. That's a real important step. How many of you believe that about yourself? See, it's easy to believe it about everybody. What about me? Okay? Do you open yourself up for the lies and do you ask the Lord to forgive you? One of, the, one of the surest signs of a really transformed new believer in Christ is they're honest. When they curse, how many of you curse this week? I played golf for the first time in weeks yesterday. But I can confess, by God's grace, I did not cuss once. That's a miracle. I told the guys, usually when I shank it like that to the right, The word I like. I hardly ever cut because I wasn't raised doing that. Most of you, like my carpenter buddies, they heard that all the time. And when I worked with them hour after hour, man, it was hard. A lot of you wrestle with that. But man, when I shank it the wrong way, man, I it just pops out. How many of you do that? Anybody do that? Unite, pious group of believers, you curse. (laughs) One of the best ways. To move from instead of cursing, you say, Praise the Lord. <laughs> is that you're honest and you let the Lord start to transform your life and there starts to be growth, which is what there really needs to be. But it all starts out just like when you're born again in the very beginning, the first time when the doctor lays down the MRI and the just laid down the MRI and he says, You're all guilty. Your hearts are wrong, your thinking is wrong, your tongue is wrong, your feet are wrong, you go to the wrong places, you're destroying people, and there's none righteous, no, not one. Now, this is the nutty thing, and this is one of the most powerful things that the Apostle Paul is trying to get across in the book of Romans. There are people that admit their sin. How many of you have ever felt guilty in this room? Anybody ever felt guilty? Yeah. What do you do when you feel guilty? How many of you, when you felt guilty, have ever said, I really need to read my Bible more? Anybody ever felt that? How many of you, when guilty, have ever felt like, I need to go to church more regularly? Anybody ever done that? Okay. In fact, when you sin and you get caught and you feel really guilty, one of the most powerful things that you resolve to do is I'm going to work harder not to do that sin again. Anybody ever decided to do that? That's the wrong cure. And that's what the Apostle Paul's attacking. His, his audience, his readership, now that they saw the, 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 the MRI, they decided, I'm going to make the MRI my cure. So the Jewish people, for example, memorized all the Old Testament. Very Orthodox, rabbinic Jews would just learn all the Old Testament. How many of you in Iwana have memorized all the New Testament? None of you have. Not all of it. So they really poured themselves into it. But look what the Apostle Paul it says. It says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth, this is verse 29, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, now get this. This is Paul's clinching of his argument. Therefore, no one will be declared right before God. No one will get a not guilty verdict. No one will be declared you're free, you're forgiven. No one will be declared righteous in his sight. By observing the law, rather through the law we become conscious of sin. That's very important. The moral law of God in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments is the heart of that. The purpose of those Ten Commandments is not to cure you. It's not to get you able to be a good person. It's not a slow behavior pattern for you to work hard and for you to learn morality. It's not that. It's for you to know I am not a good person. And the Lord shows me what I really am. And I want us in our church family. We're trying to teach virtues. It's a major thing we're trying to do. How many of you want your kids not to lie? How many of you think that's really a good lesson to teach them not to lie? Okay? Now this is what we're going to teach them in our church. We're not going to teach them you shouldn't lie. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't lie. How many of you knew before you even came to church you shouldn't lie? Okay. This is what, uh, in a ton of churches you've been raised in, this is the next thing they tell you. You shouldn't lie. Now, here's three steps to help you to learn not to lie. Look at the bad consequences. Look at the bad stuff it gets you into. Look at the hard problems that come. Look at all the mess ups in your friendships about lying. How many of you knew that before you came to church? And I've got news for you. You know what? Your little kids already know that. They know it's wrong to lie. I, my little kids knew what it was that it was wrong to lie when they were like three. And if I listen enough to them, they also have a pretty good idea of the bad consequences. And so what we constantly do, then we say, all right, now we're going to work on this together. When you lie, we're going to, we're going to try to think through again that you're really a good person and that you shouldn't lie. And, and we're going to try to help you to remember those bad consequences. Now, I want you to get it. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul is saying that you can train people in that morality. And you know what will happen? You'll end up with some really powerfully skilled camouflaged liars. And you say, Dave, how do you know that? Your whole society is showing that right now. I use the illustration in politics. Like, I've actually been in meetings with leaders of evangelicalism that said, We're going to take over, there's a moral majority. And what they're saying is that basically Americans have a conscience, and so they're on the side of the right. And so if we can just get them all to vote, we can transform this country. There will be a wave of righteousness that, that flows over the country. And we'll have a great country, like the glory days, of Leave It to Beaver. What's happened? We elected good guys. The ones that agreed with us. No abortion. Family values. What's happened? You suddenly get all these reports the guy that was against prostitution and in charge of it was on a list having prostitutes. And then he tells me a really great story. All the women just came and gave me a massage. That might have been all they did, but that wasn't all that was going on in his mind. Come on. That's baloney. That's lying. If I was in counselors, in fact, my unbelieving counselors would look at somebody and say, don't give me any more of that. And we're all nice. This is what the Bible is saying. It's saying you can have morality throughout the land. You can preach it from the housetop. And what are you going to get? Sin. Because it's a great MRI. In fact, you're going to get more and more sin. But you know what? That's not such a bad thing. Maybe this is a good day. Maybe finally our pretentiousness and our arrogance and thinking we can change things through our own strength, through our own planning, through our own ideas. Maybe we're finally going to get it flat on our face because that's what really needs to happen before the living God. Because I've got great news for you. You don't have to be terminally, eternally lost. The Apostle Paul says, i got a really strong, powerful bad news message you are terminally malignant in your sin you will lie you will be immoral you will not seek god sin will express itself it is a, it's not just he doesn't use the word sins plural he uses the word sin it's like a great powerful evil destructive kingdom has taken over your life and all of are part of that and then he says and the law is not going to set you free from that satanic demonic and evil sinful uh, seduction. And control. But then he has great news, and this is the heart. Look what he says in the next part. This is just incredibly good news. Look at this. Here's the true cure. This is what the Apostle Paul says. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to us, which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God, and it's through faith. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. There is absolutely no difference between Jews and Gentiles, this idea. All of us have sinned, which is what we've talked about. We've all lacked God's glory. We were made to give glory to God, and instead, we all lack it. So we all lack what we had originally. We were made in His image, and that's been hurt because of sin. And no longer do we reflect God's glory. We live for our own glory. But here's the good news. But we are all justified. We are declared right before God. We can be in right standing before God freely by His grace. It's incredible. It's a totally free gift, totally unearned, totally based upon God's gracious mercy. How has God expressed that gracious mercy to us? He has given us redemption, and it's come by Christ Jesus. The picture here is where it's slaves. In the Roman Empire, when the Apostle Paul wrote this book, a lot of the people he was running to were, were military slaves. The Roman army had conquered their nation, and they were enslaved. There were also those that had become domestic slaves. They, they moved from being taken as prisoners and being enslaved in this kingdom, and now they're a slave of a master working every day under the domination of a household. If you've read Ben-Hur, it tells the story of, of a young Jewish prince, uh, Ben-Hur. That it's taken captive because of his friend, Marcellus, and he wants to destroy him, Marcellus. And he sells him into slavery, and he's on the galleys. And then in the powerful movement of the story, a great Roman general is able, because Ben-Hur saves his life, he sets him free. He pays a redemptive price. He gets him out of the galley, and Ben-Hur becomes a son. Lou Wallace was telling the story of redemption. He's saying that's what it means to be redeemed, that you were under this terrible slave galley of sin. You were enslaved under its bondage. You were in a place of death. And Jesus paid the price. That's what it's talking about. That's what it means to be redeemed. The very first picture it gives. Next picture. He says you've been redeemed by Jesus. That came by Jesus Christ. God presented Jesus, and the NIV translates it as a sacrifice of atonement. The idea, let's make it complete. It's a propitiating. That means that God is angry with our sin. That's what we learned in Romans 1.18. God is justly and in his justice is pouring out his wrathful, and it's not just a vindictive explosion. It is a holy, righteous judge that's looking at a convicted murderer who has taken the lie of the little kids, and he can't just let them go. He can't just say, oh, that's no big deal. It's a terrible thing. The person deserves judgment. I deserve judgment. And God is justly upset about it. He is angry about it. We've lost that in our society. We don't believe that anymore. When I lie, God gets angry. Because he sees all the destruction that flows from that. If I use my tongue like a like a venomous cobra, God doesn't just say, oh, it's no big deal. He says, that's horrible. Look at the destruction it produces in human race. Look what happens when they murder one another and and they turn the whole world into a big graveyard. God is justly angry about that. And he can't just let it go. And what this word means is that he offers his son as an atoning, covering sacrifice. And the word that's used here is of the mercy seat and the idea in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, the priest went in, you remember that? And he would take the blood of a sacrificial animal and inside the mercy seat, underneath that cover was the law of God. Above that cover was the Shekinah glory of God. And the priest, with incredible fear, would put the blood on that mercy seat. And he would fear that he might even lose his life. And when he walked out, And was able to to get out of God's presence. He would know that the, the, the blood of the atoning sacrifice had paid for all the disregard of that covenant tablet of stone. All the laws had been broken. And it would open the way for God Shekinah, his glory to continue to dwell among his people. But all that looked forward to there would come one day when God the Father himself would sacrifice his son and the son's blood would flow on Calvary and then Jesus would enter the heavenly sanctuary like Hebrews tells us and he would forever do away with our sin. And his blood completely makes it possible for the moral commands of God to be met in our lives through the power of Jesus. By Jesus' life being poured into our own. And then the glory of God, the presence of God can live inside of us. That's what it means that he offered himself as a propitiating, atoning, covering sacrifice for sin. And he gets one more image. Through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be the one who justifies those had faith in Jesus. When you think of three pictures, one is the courtroom, and you are declared based upon Jesus. You're in the courtroom terminally condemned. The case, like we started out today, is totally closed. The father goes to bring down his gavel, but he's not going to bring it down because the father, the judge, knows that his son, because it was their plan, the son stands up and says, wait a minute, universe. Wait a minute, humanity. Wait a minute, father. You and I have a plan. And I took all the punishment they deserve. So don't bring your gavel down and say guilty, terminally separated from you. And Jesus takes the gavel, And the gavel then comes down because of Jesus, and Jesus says, free, forgiven, able to walk out, not under the sentence of death. That's the first picture of the courtroom. The next picture is the slave that I pictured for you. And then the final picture is the temple and the sacrifice. So you have justification, declared forgiven, based upon the sacrificial death of Jesus, You have redemption freed from slavery to sin, and finally, you have the beautiful atoning sacrifice and the glory of God. Like, if you've come to know Jesus, you know what it means? It means that Jesus, the glory of God, lives inside your life. And so, as you sit there, you have a taste of the glory of God. Now, I want to do something to be close. A lot of you have already made this decision, but I want you to think really through because of the pastor teacher, one of the things when it comes to something this powerful, I want to make sure that you're all covered. But I also want you to try to pray that the Lord will help you to make what I made clear to you clear to someone that doesn't know it yet. So if you look at your life's most important decision, look what it says. Now think, number one, do you agree with Paul that you will never be right with God based upon your own striving to obey God's moral law? If you agree with that, then you check yes. Number two, do you accept Paul's accusation that you're a sinner and under God just condemnation because of your sin? Right, yes or no. Thirdly, do you believe that Jesus' death is a sufficient payment for God to justly forgive you for your sin and to set you free from sin slavery? Right, yes or no. And fourthly, do you believe that Jesus' death in your place totally appeases or satisfies God's just anger against you because of your sin? And that you, now get this, and that you can now stand before God totally forgiven and be declared righteous based completely on his gift and mercy. Some of you might be from a Baptist background. You say, well, I'm trusting the fact that I walked an aisle. That's not going to do it. Some of you might have been raised in our church, and some of your friends got baptized, so you got baptized. That's not going to do it. Are you, from the depths of your heart, responding to those questions saying, that's what I'm going to trust in? The final thing is, I, and then you put your name in there, I, like I, David Wurtzen, solemnly testify that I answer yes to the above four questions. And this day, and I made that decision when I was just a young boy, I place all of my hope for acceptance before God in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. It's absolutely eternally important for you to be able to make sure that you've nailed that commitment down. So if you haven't, if you're not sure, the Apostle Paul has built his case. And you need to pray carefully about those four things. And from the depth of your soul, if you say, I accept that, Paul. I'm going to depend upon that, Paul. And you say yes, and you can put your name in there. Then what you can do is you can take those notes, you can stick them in your Bible, and you can know. I nailed it down. Don't miss it. It could be like this morning, it's like this is the courtroom of God. You're in the presence of God. He's made his case strong, and this time the great physician is saying, there's no reason for you to be terminally lost except the cure. It's my son." But if you don't accept that cure, if you keep going out trying to be religious, trying to be good, trying to do it your own way, trying to work it out, then there's going to come another eternal judgment where the gavel is going to come down. And if you haven't trusted Christ, if you haven't let Christ change you, you're going to be lost. It's a great, great conviction. I want you not to take that for granted. If you've already made that decision, then you need to go out this week and start asking, Lord, help me to get this message really clear. Help me to be focused on that message and give me opportunities to get into conversations with unbelievers about that message. So let's pray. If you're not sure that you've accepted Paul's message, this is the gospel. Nail it down this morning. Lord Jesus, I want to pray that even now as we close this service, that there would be no one that would miss what the Apostle Paul has diagnosed us about our sin, about a false cure through self-righteousness and religion, and about the only true cure, total dependence and trust upon what Jesus did on the cross and his demonstration of his power through his resurrection. I'd ask you, Lord, that you would help someone here by your grace. We, we mentioned, we learned in the hard part, the diagnosis, there's none of us that seek after you unless you work. But Lord, I thank you that you do work and that you could be drawing someone to yourself this morning and I pray that they'll respond to that incredibly powerful pull of the Holy Spirit. I'd ask you, Lord, that this incredible good news that has transformed millions upon millions of lives Down through this century, oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us, my brothers and sisters sitting before me now, to spread out into all different facets of life, into Dallas, into Fort Worth. Many of them travel all over the place. And I would ask you, Lord, that you would give us great opportunities to make what we heard today, the really clear presentation of how a person gets right with you. And help us to be able to have that great joy of sharing that with some people that haven't understood it yet and don't get it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is one eight eight eight. Six six eight seven eight eight four